Well, grace and peace to you, church, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you want to jump into the word with us this morning, we're going to be reading out of John 14. And so if you want to flip there, I'm going to be reading this morning from the New Living Translation, mixing it up just a little bit uh, on you. But we are in the sort of tail end of the season of Epiphany. It's this season in the church calendar in which we're examining and reflecting on the identity of Jesus Christ, this one who has come into the world at Christmas. What is he all about? What is the light of Christ all about? And we've been examining in these weeks to Together, the I am statements of Jesus that are found in John's gospel. And I wanted to take note that the next sort of season in the church calendar year is a season called Lent that I sort of alluded to earlier this morning. And sort of the, the kickoff to Lent, if you will, is Ash Wednesday, which is taking place on February 26th this year. And we're actually going to be holding an Ash Wednesday service on that Wednesday night and would love to invite all of you, whether you come to the, the regularly scheduled programming on Wednesday nights or not, to come be a part of that Ash Wednesday service. Uh, we'll kick it off around 7 o'clock um, and you'll be home by 8 o'clock, I promise. No, we'll be done by 8 o'clock, I promise. But um, we'd love for you to come and be a part of that service, a meaningful time together. But we're continuing in this series, the I Am Statements of Jesus, where we're not just reflecting on Jesus for ourselves, but how does Jesus sort of reveal himself to the world? What does Jesus say about himself? And this week, we're exploring the six of these seven statements and certainly the least controversial of the statements where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, up until this point in the I am statements that we've been studying, they've kind of come out of this Here's a little background on the Gospel of John for all, those of you who don't want it and those of you who do. Early in John's Gospel, it is known as the Book of the Signs, chapters 1 through 12. And there's this sort of really uh, intentional structure that the writer of John or John gives to us where there's this sign of Jesus, there's seven of these, and then this long explanation of what that sign was all about. And so you have the first of these, which is water to wine, and then Jesus explains what the water to wine was all about. And then there's this other miracle that Jesus does, and then he explains that and so on and so forth. But this morning, we jump into a new section in John's gospel known as the final discourse. That is, these are the moments that sort of record the time between the conclusion of Jesus's ministry and the beginning of what's known as his passion where he will be put on trial and executed and then vindicated in resurrection together. And in between these two great events in John's gospel, Jesus sort of has these really intimate interactions with his disciples, and this is the first of the I am statements that we discover in that part of John's gospel together. And so let's read John 14, 1 through 11. Jesus says to his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to where I am going. No, no we don't, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. 
Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Yes, the answer to that question is yes. He has no clue. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, so why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. God, we long to understand you and our Savior and Lord Jesus. So give us the grace we need in these moments to have a clearer picture of who you are and who Jesus is. And more than that, God, would you form us? Would you form us by your teaching this morning that we might become something new? It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. One of my biggest pet peeves in life is to be kidnapped. And yes, I do mean to be taken against my will, places that I do not want to go. I do not mean like the sort of legal kidnapping that happens or the illegal kidnapping that happens in the world. But my mother just happens to be one of the world's most notorious kidnappers. As a kid, I can remember my mom asking us if we wanted to go to the mall to return something at a store with her. And the invitation made it sound like it was going to be a rather quick trip. I'm just going to go return this thing and get my money back and it will be awesome. And so we'd often accept the invitation. Get out of the house for a bit, you know, get in the car, go for a drive. You know, we're in the mall. It's kind of a cool thing. Why not? Why wouldn't we do it? Five hours later, after being made to try on 15 different things in 100 different stores attached to that one at the mall, an additional stop to Target, doing the week's grocery shopping, and of course, filling up the car with gas for tomorrow, not to mention my mom is going to have a 30-minute conversation with a stranger in line wherever we are at. <sighs> we would return home and it was bedtime. This is kidnapping to me, in my mind. You tell me we're going somewhere and you take me eight different places that I actually don't want to go. That is kidnapping. And over time, we kids, we got smart. We'd either decline the invitation, right? Or we'd force our mother to sort of confess all of the potential stops that we were going to make on that day's quest. And then we'd negotiate with her, right? Depending on how many potential stores there were, it's like, well, can we go to McDonald's and get a Happy Meal? Or can we get like a Sunday? Or what, what are you going to bribe us with to be present with you, mother? But in this morning's passage, we find Jesus and the disciples in a kidnapping situation of sorts. See, earlier in the gospel, we discover that these 12 guys, these 12 disciples, they have left everything in their lives to follow Jesus. They had jobs. At least one of them, Levi, who we named our son after, had a rather lucrative job. Fingers crossed, Paige. No, right? But he had a rather lucrative job. And they left their jobs to follow Jesus. Some were fishermen, and they, they walk away from their trade. These 12 guys, they had strong family relationships in the towns that they grew up in. At least a few of them were sort of being trained in the family business, working with their dads. And they left their families to follow Jesus. 
And throughout John's gospel, we have seen that even though Jesus is performing these many signs, that he's drawing sort of local fame and popularity and attention all around him, is that the sort of powers that be in Jesus' day are not his biggest fan. In fact, they begin to plot against Jesus. We read these words in John 11. The religious leaders, they're talking amongst themselves, and they say, if we allow him, Jesus, To go on like this soon, everyone will believe in him. What a problem that would be. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. So from that day on, the religious leaders made plans to put Jesus to death. And in the midst of the repeated threats of violence, the disciples of Jesus are faithful. They continue to follow him in the midst of the chaos that's surrounding and swirling around Jesus and his ministry in the world. And just before this morning's passage in chapter 13, Jesus begins telling his disciples, you can't go with me now. You can't follow me anymore. But maybe you'll follow me later. And the disciples are thinking to themselves, what do you mean? We've left everything to follow you. We've given it all up. We've abandoned our families. We've abandoned our work. We've sort of been faithful in the midst of all of the sort of chaos that's swirling around us. And now you're saying that you're going to ditch us? See, the only thing worse than being kidnapped for a journey is being dropped off at a destination without a ride home. And these disciples are feeling that in this moment. And so we find them getting a little bit anxious and stressed about what all Jesus is starting to say, what's going on here. And in the face of his impending imprisonment and execution, we find Jesus comforting them. Fascinating little insight into the character of Jesus. He's the one who knows, I'm going to trial. Mission, ministry, it's all over. I'm gonna die. Those guys are stressing out for themselves, and I guess I'll still, even in the midst of that moment, I'll I'll comfort them. And the comfort that Jesus brings is caught up in his insistence that he's going to prepare a place for the disciples in his father's house. It's a big, big house. I don't know why that song just popped into my mind. But the only other time that Jesus makes mention of his father's house in John's gospel is a reference to the temple in Jerusalem. You see this earlier in John chapter 2 where Jesus is like flipping over tables and throwing things all in the, the temple courtyards and he declares to those who are present, don't make my father's house a place of business. Or we see it also in a, a reference in Luke's gospel where there's that moment where uh, the mother of Jesus, Mary, loses the son of God, loses the divine son in Jerusalem and when she frantically finds him, Jesus says back to her, didn't you know, mother, in as calm a voice as he possibly could say, that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house. He's in the temple. And many of us are aware that the temple was a central place of worship within Jewish life. It was a place where sacrifices were made. It was the place that pilgrims would journey during the great festivals throughout the calendar year. But beyond being the sort of event center of religious life, and activity within Jewish within the Jewish life the temple represented so much more than that the temple represented the place the physical place where heaven and earth met the place where god made his dwelling with people on earth and in our passage this morning jesus seems to be alluding to the fact that he is going to a new place a new center a new temple a new house 
that is being prepared where heaven and earth will meet and that place has room for everybody to live in. Jesus' words here are meant to comfort the disciples, letting them know that even though he will leave them now, that he will not forget them when he goes. This is why these verses are often read at funeral services for us in our day. We can't see the way ahead and we, we, need, we need only to know that there is a way into an unknown future and that we will be able to find it because Jesus is there and he promises that he will not forget us. But there is, however, one problem for the disciples in that moment <laughs> is that Jesus' attempt at comforting him and Thomas is the one always doubting Thomas, just kind of say what everyone else is thinking, right? He doesn't hesitate to state and ask the obvious thing. No, Jesus, we have no clue where you're going. Like, what are you talking about? What are, where are you going, Jesus? We have no idea where you're going, so how can you say that we know the way to where you're going, this place, this home that you are creating where God will make his dwelling with us perfectly? And Jesus' response to this question has confused, angered, annoyed, and irritated the world ever since it came off of his lips. Several years ago, I took a survey of the students in the youth ministry that I was serving in. The students were sort of junior high and high school aged. And to be sure, okay, I'll just confess it up front, this is not a scientifically valid study like at all. Uh, but I was really interested in knowing how my students that I was serving thought about Christian faith in relationship to other faiths and sort of in the sort of cultural moment that we find ourselves in today. And the survey I gave them just had statements about beliefs about other religions and the Christian religion and Christian theology. And the students, for the most part, they're sort of church kids. They grew up in the church, most of them. Their families valued church for the most part. And so I was curious to know what they thought about just Christian faith and belief. And some of the statements that I surveyed them on were the following. And they were just asked, do you agree, disagree, or are you unsure about this statement? The first one, Christian faith isn't better or worse than other religions in the world. Or being a good person is more important than following a specific religion. It doesn't matter what faith you believe in as long as your faith helps make you a better person. Or the last one that I'll share with you, they had to do a lot more work than these four, trust me. But if I had a friend who had, different, had a different religion, I would try to encourage them to become a Christian, which just sends a chill down so many people's spines in the world today. And within the context of that youth group, the majority of our students frequently valued my perception was, other religions on par with the Christian religion. For example, two-thirds of the students agreed or were unsure about the statement, Christian faith isn't better or worse than other religions in the world. In their minds, it's like, I don't know, this is what we do, they do that thing, and they're all kind of the same, right? Or two-thirds of the students agreed or were unsure about the statement, it doesn't matter what faith you believe in, as long as your faith helps make you a better person. Two-thirds of our students agreed with or were unsure about the statement being a good person is more important than following a specific religion. Fascinating insight into the way young people think about faith and religion and 
philosophy and all these types of things sort of swirling and converging into these beliefs or uncertainties. And though these, this survey wasn't a valid survey, the responses from our students really were illustrative of the cultural moment in which we find ourselves as the church in 2020. You see, within the philosophical and theological milieu of our day, Jesus' words in our passage this morning, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to God except through me. These words, they sound naive and thoughtless at best, and arrogant, intolerant, and uninformed at worst. At worst. We live, church, in a pluralistic society. That is, our neighbors and friends have different theological and philosophical convictions and beliefs. And in order to sort of peaceably coexist, yes, I'm using the bumper sticker phrase there on purpose, we sort of nurtured within our society this mantra that all religions are the same or all truth is subjective. What's true and good for you may not be what's true and good for me. And these ways of thinking aren't just held by non-Christians. They're held by many Christians, many, many Christians, a lot of our younger Christians for sure. And Jesus' words sort of run smack in the face of our cultural sensitivities. You are the only way to God. You are the sole source of truth. You are the exclusive way to eternal life. What? You can't say that. And reading Jesus through our cultural lens makes him sound self-serving and arrogant and insensitive. And I want to suggest this morning that actually we would do best not to read Jesus through our cultural lens, forcing upon him some ideas and ways of thinking about faith and the world in order to understand what he's saying. It's so backwards. What we have to try and understand is what Jesus is saying of himself. And I want to suggest this morning that we as a church and the world, really, would do best to understand the claims of Jesus in this morning's passage as illuminating his unique identity rather than an arrogant pronouncement of excluding truths. This passage is about him, not the rest of us. See, the most shocking statement to me of Jesus this morning isn't the I am statement or the sort of excluding words of Jesus. It is rather the sort of concluding exhortation that Jesus gives to Philip. He says, believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. What? The other day, our family was FaceTiming together. Apparently, you can FaceTime multiple people. We were just discovering this as a family, like on our phones, and it was like, Paige was in one room FaceTiming. I was in another room. We're in the same house FaceTiming one another, and my parents were doing this. We had like five or six of us FaceTime together. And a bit of background for you. My father is known to be, at least within our family and the people that I know, the king of dad jokes which is a nice way of saying that he has a really cheesy, lame sense of humor. And somewhere in the midst of our conversation, I apparently made a sort of corny joke to which my brother replied, oh my goodness, you are dad. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I am dad. This is a problem. (laughs) And it would be natural for us to read Jesus' statement in verse 11. I am the Father, and the Father is in me. Sort of in this way, but that's not exactly what Jesus means. Jesus means something much more intimate, 
much more surprising and shocking. In fact, Jesus says it a lot clearer in, earlier in chapter 10 where he says, I and, the fa- I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. You see, the whole of John's gospel and actually the whole of the New Testament is telling a story to us. And the story that it's telling is that the God of the Bible The one true living God, the creator God of all things is the God of Israel and that God has come into human history and is acting through the person of Jesus to rescue the world from darkness and death. Hence, the last two signs of John's sort of gospel, right? You have the healing of the blind man who was in darkness and you have the raising of Lazarus who was dead. You have darkness to light, you have death to life. This is the story that John's gospel in the New Testament is telling that this God has entered into the world to redeem the world through his work on the cross. It isn't just that Jesus has some sort of profound moral truths and enlightened wisdom to offer the world. Rather, it is that God himself has come into the world in order to bring life to the whole world. For God loved the whole world, right? And yes, of course, there have been Christians and churches who have been arrogant and excluding in the way they have presented the gospel, no doubt. Yes, there still are Christians and churches who are arrogant and excluding in the way that they present the gospel, no doubt. That always always happened, it probably, unfortunately, always will happen. But as N.T. Wright wrote, The truth, the life, through which we know and find the way is Jesus himself. The Jesus who washed the disciples' feet and told them to copy his example. The Jesus who was on his way to give his life as the good shepherd for the sheep. You see, the Jesus that we discover and the God that we discover in the Gospels and in the New Testament is not arrogant. The God who is revealed to us in the gospel and in Jesus is not excluding. He's rather the opposite of it. The God who is revealed to us in Jesus and in the gospel and the New Testament is not selective about who will join him in his father's house. The invitation is open and as inclusive as it possibly can be. And that invitation to believe that Jesus gives to the disciples in this moment reaches beyond the pages of scripture and is extended to all of us. Will you believe? Will you believe in the God who has come to save? Will you believe in the God who's calling the whole world into relationship with himself? And when we turn it into anything other than that, when we turn Jesus' words and his identity into, hey, well, we're our faith is religion is better than yours, and we got all the truth, and you got all of the wrong truth, and guess what? We're right, and you're, this is just not how Jesus goes about ministry. And when we find ourselves in that position, that arrogant, we're right, and you're wrong sort of posture, you can know that that is not the posture of Jesus. In his famed work, Near Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, these words if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world if you've ever felt 
like there has been an unmet desire or yearning in your life, one that you've been longing but unable to satisfy. If you've ever had a hungering for more than what life has offered, I invite you to consider following Jesus. He is the way to true, full, abundant life. And when we look to Jesus, the one who wept at the tomb of his friend, the Jesus who washed his followers' feet, the one who fed the hungry, the one who cared for the disabled, the one who befriended the outcast, what we see is the one who is the one true God in the world. That is true. And like Jesus himself, the church, we, as the people of God, we have to own our unique identity in the world. See, in following Jesus, we can never seriously claim to follow the one true God, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. If we don't own our unique identity as the people of God, as those who are learning to live our lives as Jesus would live our lives if he were us. If we're not disciples, our words are hollow and we stand on no foundation. See, we must be the ones who weep with our friends. We must be the ones who wash one another's feet in service and care. We must be the ones who feed the hungry. We must be the ones who care for the disabled. We must be the ones who befriend the outcasts, those who are on the margins of society. And when we do, when we do, church, the world will see who is the one true God, the one that we discover and who is revealed to us in the person of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. You are the one who clears a path to the Father. And our longing and desire, God, is to be a people who by not just our words and our message and our preaching, but in our lives and the way that we pursue you faithfully, that we would reveal this truth about you. That our church through its communal life together, would bear witness to the fact that the one true God of the world is discovered in Jesus. Lord, forgive us for all of the times in which we've gone about this gospel-proclaiming task without humility and grace. And empower us, Holy Spirit, to do so from this day forward that we would look like Jesus proclaiming the gospel and in so doing, you would draw people into yourself. We want to see people discover full life. We want to see people discover healing and transformation. We want to see people come out of darkness into light. And so form within us the type of community that that can happen. It's the name of the one who saves that we pray, Jesus, amen.